teetered on the brink of suicide. So writes the American author, Lily Barana. We've got her photograph, if I could get that slide. In an issue of CT Magazine, she writes about her own struggle with depression and how it nearly brought about her death. Lily had always been a gloomy person. Even as a small child, she suffered from severe bouts of depression. She had been raised in a Christian home, but even so, the darkness within her kept deepening. She got married. She started working as a writer between dark spells that would freeze her into a writer's block that would last weeks at a time. Uh, but then a dangerously deep depressive spell began to grip her. She says, I teetered on the brink of suicide, even with the outward show of a full and happy life. I had a husband, I had a family, I had my health, I had my career. I felt desperate and alone. I felt scared, stained, and worthless. Some of you can only imagine lying in bed all day, paralyzed by the darkness within you, knowing that your lack of productivity then adds to your sense of despair. You know the emptiness, you know the sorrow, you know the hopelessness, uh, the helplessness. Others of you have known this too well. Some of you can only imagine that she was in bondage to forces beyond her control, and they trapped her in a prison and risked leading to her death. We all, in some way, experience bondage. It's one of our baseline narratives as the human race is that we long for freedom, freedom from illness, freedom from death, freedom from the bondage of substance abuse, of alcoholism, of sickness, of mental illness, of bitterness, of our own sin, of abuse. All of us on some level are longing to break free of something that is clinging on to us and will not let us go. That's true as individuals, and it's even true at times of God's people. We're going to look at another instance of bondage, in this case specifically that of the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And we're going to look at a mysterious figure who shows up and changes everything. This is the book of Exodus, the chapter, the third chapter, the first ten verses. Follow along with me. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, that's another name for Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I'll go over and, and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When Moses saw that, that and when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people 
in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. What do we see here? Well, first we see Moses and, and the Israelites. Uh, Moses realized himself at this point was a refugee from the Egyptians. Uh, remember, Moses had been raised in Pharaoh's court in his own household, and even though he was Jewish, and, and he had at one point seen the way the, the, the Egyptian slave masters were beating the, the, his fellow Israelites. And so at one point he killed one of the guards and then had to flee Egypt for his own life because he had been witnessed committing murder in defense of his fellow people. And so Moses is in the Sinai Peninsula. He's tending the flock of, of his father-in-law Jethro, um, more or less beyond the reach of the Egyptians. Uh, at a place called Midian, and he, he, he at this point had led his father-in-law's flock up to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. The Israelites, we also see, were suffering from brutal subjugation. You know, they had ended up in Egypt at, 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 at Joseph's invitation uh, centuries earlier uh, as just uh, one extended family, one clan of people, uh, you know, brothers and, uh, and their children and grandchildren, and then they came for safety because there was famine in the promised land, and so they came and there was much food in Egypt. God had provided, uh, had raised up Joseph for that very purpose, to save a great many, and, and they prospered there. They remained there as guests of Pharaoh, but over the centuries, the politics of the situation changed, and it was no longer about having a vizier of Egypt who is providing a place for family members of his so they don't starve to death. It became this like million or so people who aren't Egyptian who are sitting on our land, eating our food, taking up our space. And so they ended up becoming a threat to Pharaoh because if you've got a million or more foreign people living in your kingdom and a, and a, a, a foreign enemy invades, that could be the fifth column that rises up and throws off the shackles. And so they begin to enslave the Israelites. Uh, they became a, a, a lower caste, if you will. Um, and, uh, and yet God sees what he calls their misery in Egypt. He hears, he says, they're crying out because of their slave drivers. He says he sees their suffering. He writes, the Egyptians are oppressing them. This isn't a fable. This is a historical account grounded in actual human history. Um, you know, I, I read the Old Testament scholar, archaeologist, and, and Egyptologist James uh, K. Hoffmeyer's Oxford University Press book, Israel and Egypt, which really puts to rest, I think, a lot of those theories that people love to say that suggest that the Israelites were never really living in Egypt. They were. The archaeological and Egyptological evidence is, is profound. But this is real. And 
And there was no one who could rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians. They were a subjugated people. They looked different. They, they spoke different language. They ate different food. They dressed differently. They were Jews. Uh, and if we date Moses to the 15th century BC, then this was also the 18th dynasty of the pharaohs. This was the period in which ancient Egypt reached its peak of political and military and cultural power. It exerted its power from Syria in the north all the way down the Levant, down through Egypt and into what today is Sudan and beyond. Uh, you know, this was the time in which the Egyptians had destroyed a great Canaanite alliance of tribes at the Battle of Megiddo. Egypt was the world power. And there was nothing the Israelites could do to escape from their enslavement. It was like being enslaved on a Russian collective farm in Siberia at the height of the Soviet Union's power. It would be like being a sharecropper in the American South under Jim Crow when you weren't allowed to leave the farm, when you couldn't leave without being arrested, when the sheriff would drive around town, the black parts of town, on Saturdays during harvest and arrest any person of color who wasn't working on the harvest because they were expected to and they had no rights. This is the horrible situation of being functionally enslaved. You can imagine the subjugation, the beating, the whips, the punishment, the bondage that God's people were experiencing. And God says, I, I've seen it and I have heard it and their cries have reached me. When you're being held against your will in the, the belly of the beast with no chance of escape. The Israelites were in bad shape. They were hopeless. And Moses was hiding himself as a refugee from the Egyptians in Midian. So we see Moses, and we see the Israelites, and yet we see another figure here. We see the angel of the Lord. That's what Moses calls this entity that he sees. He's tending his flock on Mount Horeb or, or, or Sinai, the mountain of God. And there we, we read, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Did you catch that? Not an angel appeared to him, but the angel of the Lord. With the definite article, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, we read, in flames of fire from within a bush. And yet, it wasn't a bush that was on fire because the bush wasn't being consumed. It was a fire that burns and yet does not consume the thing that it's on. And it's mysterious. So he goes up and looks at it and tries to figure out what this is. And he realizes it's the angel of the Lord, not not a guy with big, white, fluffy wings. There are other kinds of angels in the Bible. But, but this one is different. This one is appearing as fire. Burning, yet never consuming the bush. And so Moses approaches. What is this thing? And then it speaks. It speaks to Moses. We read, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. He said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. This is holy ground. What does that mean? For something to be holy was to be completely other. Its opposite is not unholy. Its opposite is common. You are not in a common place. You're in a place that is holy. Think of Isaiah the prophet when he is taken up into the throne room of heaven and he has a vision of four beasts, four angels surrounding the throne, the cherubim, and, and they have six wings. With two, they cover their eyes because no one can look upon God and live. And with two wings, they cover their feet because 
defeat or uh, speak to our creatureliness and our humility and our, uh, and our, our, our fleshiness. And so in, 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 in reverence of God, they cover their feet and with two, they're flying and they're continually crying out again and again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They cry out again and they do it again and they do it again. It's the background noise of heaven, the eternal declaration in triplicate that God is not like us. He is holy. He is total other. And so Moses removes his sandals and recognizes here that there is an entity, there is a power, a holiness unlike anything he had ever encountered. You know, the Dutch have a term, uh, uh, a phrase that they use whenever a room of people's all talking and then suddenly it always gets really super quiet. You, you ever been there when that happens? Where like, just suddenly like everybody just stopped talking at the same time? They say a priest walked by. It's the notion of holiness making someone feel uncomfortable. And no doubt Moses would have been feeling some level of fear we can speculate fear for his own safety, fear of what this great omen might portend, fear of what it might do to him, fear of what it might demand of him, fear that he might look upon it and die, uh, this burning angel of fire who speaks with God's voice. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. Then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am the God who brought you to Egypt, and now I am the God who has heard your cries and is going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses, we read, hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He, he didn't just want to remove his sandals. He wanted to remove his eyeballs for his own physical safety. He realized this angel of the Lord was also at the same time God. It was God who was speaking to him. So he's removed his, his, his stuff, and he's, he's, he's sitting here and listening now, and the angel of the Lord is speaking a promise of rescue, a promise to deliver from bondage, to set free from slavery, a promise of salvation, far from being some Near Eastern sky god. This entity wants us to know that he has heard our cries, that he has heard, and that he has ears that listen with great empathy, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. Do you know what it's like to be in misery? Do you know what it's like to be a victim of abuse? To be despised, to be talked about, talked to, talked down, put down? When you're invisible. And God says, I have seen and I have heard because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. God's saying, I see you. I know what you are going through. I hear you. Your cries have come up to me. And so I am going to come down and bring you up out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey for a people who were slaves God is saying, I have indeed seen. I have heard your cries. Because of the slave drivers, I have heard them crying out of their slave, dri of, of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. The heart of God, friends, this is the Old Testament God, the God of love, 
the God of justice, the God who hears the cries of the oppressed and comes to their defense, the God who identifies with the poor, with the weak, with the wounded, with the outsider, over against those with power. And this God is promising now that he is going to lead the Israelites out from their house of bondage, cementing their identity as his very own people and bringing them into a land filled with life and freedom. God who is concerned about your suffering. The cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, showing his heart of compassion and loyalty, has said covenant loyalty to his own people to come to their defense because he loves us. And so God sets in motion what will become one of the larger human migrations of that era with the Israelites leaving Egypt in mass, the, the great exodus into the promised land that would humiliate the gods of Egypt, show them to be ineffective and powerless, false gods, unlike the true God, the God of Abraham, the one true God, the God of the Israelites, who had appeared as the angel of the Lord, a flaming angel of fire. And yet we also see here the angel of the Lord is revealed to us. There is a mystery of plurality within the Godhead. Um, what does that mean? It means the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, you hear God say before there's anything else there, let us make man in our image. Let us make humanity according to our likeness. Because already there were within the Godhead multiple persons. In the Old Testament, we see God, and yet we also see uh, the breath of God, ruach, often translated spirit. It literally means God's breath that seems to have a life of its own and seems to be God itself. And then you see the angel of the Lord who speaks as God. You see these three in the Old Testament revealed to us, each God and yet not the same. And, and, and here, this means that from the very beginning, what we now know as the Trinity means that from eternity past, there was never a time in which there was not relationship. There's never been a time in which there was not community. There's never been a time in which there was not love between the Father and of the Son and their spirit. A, 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 a binding love. You're longing to be known. You're longing for love. You're longing for community. You're longing for relationship. Friends, that's not an aspect of your sociology, but of our theology, because it's grounded before creation itself in the fact that we were made like not likeness of a God who is himself three and one. And this God, this angel of the Lord, is here in the Old Testament redeeming God's people again and again and again, freeing us from bondage. The Swiss reformer, John Calvin, said that whenever you see God in the, Old, in the Old Testament acting in his redemptive power to rescue his people, there you are seeing implicitly the working of the second person of the Trinity, pre-incarnate. You're seeing the pre-incarnate Christ. The early fathers of the Christian church, like Justin Martyr, identified this Old Testament angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Christ, whose appearance is a, a Christophany, a display of Christ before his incarnation, is recorded in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you know, one reason why some early Christians viewed Jesus as the angel of the Lord is, is because it fit with existing 
previous Jewish ways of reading scripture, the, uh, the, the respected New Testament scholar Susan Garrett writes, the logic behind reading of Jesus into the accounts of the angel of the Lord went deeper. She writes, many Jews before and during the time of Jesus were deeply interested in angels. Some understood the angel of the Lord as being completely separate from God, a sort of angelic vizier or right-hand angel who served as the head of the heavenly host and in other important capacities, including as the mediator between God and humanity. Further, some Jews routinely appropriated language used in scripture to describe the angel of the Lord and used it to characterize certain of God's attributes, including God's word, the logos, uh, including God's glory, God's wisdom, God's spirit, his ruach, his breath, his power, his name, almost as if these aspects of the deity were themselves independent angelic creatures. In other words, quite apart from Christianity, there was talk among ancient Jews of God's word, God's logos, and God's glory, and so forth, in terms highly reminiscent of the angel of the Lord, so that when early Christian authors like Justin Martyr connected Jesus with the logos, God's word, that we see in, 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 in John 1, where the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning, and then in turn, when they, they identify that logos, the word of God, with the angel of the Lord, they're not inventing from scratch so much as a adding a new layer, she writes, to well-established ways of reading Jewish scripture. The Hellenistic Jewish philosopher in the first century, Philo of Alexandria himself, identified the angel of the Lord with the Logos, the word of God, who we know to be Jesus. Paul identifies even the rock that Moses struck. You remember when Moses, the people were complaining, they did that back then, uh, they were complaining uh, they didn't have any water in the desert, and they wanted water, and, and Moses got angry, and he took his staff, and he struck the rock, and it started spewing out water. Um, you know, St. Paul identifies that as a Christophany, a manifestation of Christ before his incarnation. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes, they all ate, that is the Israelites, ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink as us, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied, accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was there with God's people among us, even before he ever became incarnate as a human being. Before we ever knew him as Jesus Christ, he was there giving grace to God's people all along from the very beginning. It's interesting, once you actually see in the New Testament Jesus become incarnate, there's no more reference to the angel of the Lord. There are references to an angel from God, but not the. Not because the angel of the Lord disappeared, but if we're right here, it's because the angel of the Lord actually appeared incarnate, the one who is God and yet God's messenger at the same time. This exodus that Moses is being commissioned to lead this exodus out of slavery into the promised land that Moses is beginning, that the, the angel of the Lord is commissioning him to do, is a part of a much larger exodus. Riley earlier read from the Transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. Remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the top of a mountain? The top of the mountain... His face changed and became brilliant light. And then Moses and Elijah were suddenly there. And they were talking about something. It says, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor. 
<coughs> Talking with Jesus, they spoke about his departure. The Greek term there, they spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Let me put this together for you. Transfiguration. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, on top of a mountain talking to Moses about his exodus. <laughs> it happened before. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, I am going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to offer my very life for this people. And through my death, and through my resurrection, and through my ascension to the Father, and the outpouring of my spirit, I am going to accomplish the exodus to which the other exodus was pointing. The true liberation of my people from sin, from death, from sickness, from their enemies, from every evil. From, from, I am giving them a life that even death will not be able to take from them. A freedom that they never knew they could have. The freedom from bondage that Jesus came to bring about collectively as God's people and individually in our own lives, setting us free from the house of bondage, bondage to guilt, bondage to our sin, bondage to the idols we otherwise would pine after, to give us freedom, true freedom, to walk in eternal life as God's precious and secure people. See, God was there. Jesus was there with God's people in Midian and in Egypt 3,500 years ago with Moses. And he was there taking our blows as water came from him, that rock that was the ministering grace of God to our people. And he was there nailed to a wooden cross on a hillside outside of Jerusalem, permanently incarnate, dying the death we could never die so that we might live the life we could never have. This Christ, distinct from the Father, but also God. It's the mystery of the angel of the Lord that culminates in his true revelation as the Logos, as the Word of God, as son, God the Son, the Son of God. And he reveals his identity. He shows himself to Moses and the Israelites and to the apostles and to us as a God of compassion who hears your cries. And he sees. And your appeal has come up to him. And he hears your cries and he sees your tears and he promises deliverance to deliver you safely into glory as one who is united to Christ in his resurrection. A God who came to set free the things that held us in bondage, to liberate us. Lily Barana said, I teetered on the brink of suicide. Even with the outward show of a full and happy life, I had a husband, I had a family, I had my health, I had my career, I felt desperate, alone, scarred, stained, and worthless. At my lowest low, I asked God for a sign, and God delivered in the form of a bald eagle soaring right across my sight line where minutes after I'd requested that exact omen. Lily cautiously returned to church, and she loved hearing about how God not only redeems, but also emboldens us. She was struck by Hebrews 13.6, so we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Lily writes, I would love to tell you that God reached down and whisked away all my depression. But faith is only made living with it more manageable. 
it helps that I can take my meds with something approaching religious fervor, but I can't lay full credit for my well-being at the feet of Big Pharma, for nothing has helped me recover more than receiving God's grace in Jesus Christ. Depression is most often an invisible illness, can enslave you, can destroy you. People don't know you have it unless you tell them. Through faith in Christ, she says, I feel less alone, less ashamed, and less likely to conceal my suffering because I know it's hard and believed by God, because I know that it is heard and it is believed by God. I'm beholding things with a peace and a depth I've never experienced before, and through Christ, I am redeemed. The slate has been wiped clean. Let's pray.